Hi, you're listening to Behind All the Stories with me, your host, Yemisi Adegoke. So, Nigerian parents say this thing when they're comparing their children to other kids, which I guess is supposed to serve as a form of motivation. For example, say I come home with a B, and my friend Dami comes home with an A. Dami always gets A's, always wins competitions, is voted prefect and predicted to be the most successful student in the world. My dad would ask, how comes Dami is always getting A's and doing all this stuff? And you, Yemisi, you're just there. Does Dami have two heads? It was definitely a phrase I heard a lot. And as I got older, I met people who made me want to go back to my dad and say, uh, yeah, this person actually does have two heads. Because that's the only feasible explanation for the amount they've achieved. Well, today's guest, Wana Udobang, is one such person. A poet, a journalist, a host, a documentary maker, an artist. I'm almost out of breath saying all the things she does, and does well, mind you. She just won a place on a highly coveted international writers' retreat in the States. And I spoke to her about moving back to Nigeria, why she stopped telling certain stories, and how she balances it all. Here it is. First of all, congratulations are in order. I saw that you have been selected for the International Writing Program. That is so amazing. Congratulations. Such good news in such a horrible time. <laughs> I know. That must be, I was just like, I was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> I am that mad. must be so nice. exciting. Yeah, so so what are you do like yes, what are you looking forward to most about that program? It it sounds so cool. Um I know like the program is just like layered with so much stuff that I'm like I actually had to call uh, I knew of someone who was a who was an alumni. She I think she was part of the cohort of last year. So I was like, okay, how was the experience? So I'm really I'm excited about everything, but I think mostly just being able to share my work with other people. Um, mm. then meeting the other writers as well. And then I think in part of the program, you get to collaborate with um, the, like the thing, the music department and the drama department. So just interesting because I'm, I'm someone who loves like playing with mediums. So I'm really looking forward to that. Like how, you know, my work is going to be collaborated with in terms of like drama and theater and, um dance as well um th- I, I feel there's so much to look forward to then we also get to teach too which is which I haven't done much of so I'm excited by the challenge of that you know um yeah so and I, I started sort of developing a poetry workshop as well so it would be nice to see how that plays out if there's going to be room for me to to kind of put that into action there as well so yeah it's um it's just exciting on all all grounds, really. Kind of like just meeting meet. I love meeting people. Like I'm always kind of inspired by other other artists' energy. So I think that's like a huge part for me, just being in that kind of community and you know having people from all over the world as well, sharing their work and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's all very exciting. It feels a bit kind of reductive to call you a journalist because you do so much more than that. Like yeah, yeah. I was looking at your. Uh, your like bio and stuff and I was like damn this is the stuff that when my mom I'm telling you when my mom was asking me like when I was a kid does this person have two heads and I was like I feel like this is someone who actually does have two heads oh my like, god yes yeah, so like seriously 
I mean, you got your poetry, you write, you present, you host, you produce documentaries. Like, so, I mean, what label, if any, Sha, because yeah, maybe there's yeah. no label, but like, what label would you feel kind of encompasses you best? So these days, I had to, I had to think about this thing so carefully because I was like, every, every time I found myself actually almost compartmentalizing myself all the time, right? So mm. one minute, in some spaces, I'm a journalist. In some spaces, I just say writer to cover it. In some spaces, I'm a poet. So now I just say storyteller. So I feel mm. like storyteller like, encompasses it all because I think in every single medium, that's all I'm doing. I'm telling stories. Right. Is there any yeah. medium that you feel more comfortable in or is it all because I guess you're using similar skill sets, even though yeah. the mediums are different? Yeah, I think, I think um, they're all very similar to me. So they're just all like, they're almost like different languages, I suppose. I think mm. the only thing I would say, maybe the, the one that I'm least, um, co- I don't want to say competent, but maybe I'm not, is, and it's really more of the technical side of things. And that's mm. probably like filmmaking. So I think right. it's the one thing that I, I require sort of technical assistance for. Right. So it, I mean, it definitely is a skill though, to be able to kind of inhabit mm. all those worlds because you do it so seamlessly. And obviously the content that you put out in whatever medium it is, is fantastic. Um, but yeah. I want to know, like, which world did you enter first and how did you get into that? So, um, I pretty much just started. So university, I studied journalism. That was my, that's my degree. That was my main degree. Um, I initially wanted to write, right? So I, I went, I went into study journalism, hoping to be a writer, like do print. Um, and <laughs> something really weird just kind of happened. So where, so in school, um, I noticed that during my, my print, specifically my print features class, I knew when I did like the print news days, I was so bored like court mm. reporting and stuff like that. I was like, I was like, this is not, this cannot be it, <laughs> you know? And then when we got into like print features, I was like, okay, yes, I found my home. This is the thing I'm, I'm trying to do, you know? And then mm. I also knew that I, I was like passionate and really excited about it, but then I just wasn't getting the high scores that I would want as the right. Nigerian, <laughs> you know? Um, so literally one day, and I remember I would be right, you know, I, I moved from Nigeria to the UK, so... Um, I still have, um, you know, I, I was still a bit of a freshie when it came to, you know, how we Nigerians do things. Um, so I remember always wanting to, always having all these really very s- strong, like these very um, heavy stories is the word, heavy stories I wanted to write about. So during like classwork, you know, I, I specifically remember one day saying um, one of our assignments and I was like, oh, I'm going to write about um, female genital mutilation. And then I asked my colleague, my one of my my friends in class, I was like, oh, so Cam, what are you writing about? And then she goes, oh, I'm just talking about, about Christmas shopping. And I was like, sorry. <laughs> you know. Anyway, oh, we write, we all write our pieces and stuff. You know, me, I'm there thinking, ah, I'm writing a very heavy, important, you know, what I have to say is more important than everybody else. You know, so mm. I do this thing. And then I think I get like, I think my score was maybe like 59 or something, like almost 60, you know. And I was just like, I don't understand. Like, I'm doing my best here. What, what, what more? What, what am I missing? So I actually went mm. to the tutor and I went, I, was like, Please, I need to speak to you. And so I go and meet him. And then he says to me that, oh, you know, that, you know, your, your pieces are very, they're very strong, you know, and everything. And then he says, you know, even, it even made me uncomfortable trying to eat my sandwich on the train whilst I was reading your story. Um, 
But he now says to me, but you know, I just feel like there's no personality to the writing. Even if now I do think it was just something else <laughs> that we both know about. So, you know, mm-hmm. at the time I really took, you know, I was, how old was I? Like 19. So I really took it to heart. And then he says to me, he does think that the things I'm writing about will be better suited for radio shows. That was what he said to me. I see. And so I was, as soon as he said that, I was just like, look, I'm not even ready to do any struggle. So Claire, so I, t- I interpreted it as I'm not good at writing. So that moment I killed every idea or dream of writing. And so the next oh, semester, wow. I moved, yeah, the next semester I moved straight to radio. Luckily I had a really amazing like radio tutor. And then because I was like, I did my degree in an art university. So she also allowed us to experiment with like different kinds of things. So I was majoring mainly, I was like, I found myself drawn to documentary radio. So that's what kind of where I was mostly like features radio and documentary radio um, and then I would be trying to make some features sometimes. And, and I remember going to meet my tutor and saying, oh, Amanda, like I write poems and I want to incorporate poems into this thing. And she was like, yeah, great. So it kind of allowed me to become a bit more artistic within that sort of radio mm. production. So I could like move in like things like sound art and, you know, and poetry inside of it. Like even my final um, project had poems inside, inside of the um, radio documentary. And so that was it. So I, I didn't think I was going to write again. Um, I just thought my dream at that point was like, I wanted to do radio. Um, I was just fixated on like trying to work for Radio 4 and making those documentaries. That was like all I wanted to do mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time, <laughs> literally, you know. Um, I liked a lot of like experimental radio as well. I remember vividly like listening to American Radio Works all night, like every single documentary on there or NPR, like, all night long till, like, 2 a.m. in the morning. Anyway, um, from there, I think one day I graduated, um, finished with a first. One day, um, a friend of mine who who owns Bella Ninja, the website, her name is Uche. So at the time, and Bella Ninja was still, like, this was a blog, wasn't a website yet. She was still very anonymous, and she was living in England. And so there was a concert, and she said to me, oh, I know you like art a lot. That Do you want to write about this show? There was this um, singer called Neo, Neo, so, Neo. Um, I think she only had one album and that was it, but she was really amazing at the time. So she was like, oh, there's this um, concert. I got free tickets at um, Imperial. So do you want to like go and write about it? I was like, cool. So I, I write like a little review on Bella Ninja. And then from there, Uche asked me every other time, do you want to write something? Do you want to write something? So this is how I started writing again, essentially. I started like, like blogging, but I still didn't think that like writing was my thing. Like I was going to be good at it. And so that's how I started writing again. But I'd always written poems from when I was about 15, I think. Yeah, 15, 16. But they were, I didn't think they were poems at the time, to be honest with you. With you. <laughs> they were just like angst-ridden, little weird musings and things I was writing. Uh, and then uh, my best friend at the time read one of them. And then she was like, oh, yo, this is like poetic, you know? And I think that was kind of what sowed the seed of the idea of me writing poetry. And then she bought me a journal because I was writing on little scraps of paper and keeping them. So she bought me a journal and I just kept, and I think that moment I sort of started reading poetry, like, okay, maybe there's something here. Um, But even with that, I didn't, I didn't call myself a poet until a very, very long time later. I just thought that poetry was just like this outlet for me and like catharsis, you know, from all the things I'd gone through as a teenager to any kind of isolation I was feeling. And so that's how like a lot of them started sort of developing side by side. 
Um, mm. So I had done radio. I'd started working at a radio station when I moved to Nigeria, was blogging on the side all the time. Just the blogging was actually even my way of getting, um, just taking me away from like office politics drama. <laughs> so <laughs> I was writing the game for me. So that was all my blog. So it was like, I had like two different worlds, you know, that was fun. Then I would be performing on Thursdays at Bogobiri in Lagos. So again, it was like, this is where we let our hair down after like a serious day of work. So all of these things were just like fun things that I was doing, where, you know, um, just exploring with the internet as a medium and a channel to like, just express yourself really um and so i think that's kind of how all of it just kind of like we're we're developing simultaneously at the same time so i wanted to just go back to um you know your experience in the uk like it's so unfortunate Mm. like it's weird because like i studied journalism as well Mm. and when you when you said that part about you know this lecturer kind of talking about your writing and how you know it shifted your trajectory Mm -hmm. from what you initially wanted to do and and even though like you know in hindsight you can say oh thanks for that but at the time like that stuff can be quite painful it can be quite like it feels like someone's like shitting all over your dream and you're just kind of like wow Mm -hmm. okay without even trying to to sort of assist you in that way but I think I just Mm want to know because there's this you know with journalism there's always this sort of question do you like should you go to university for it do you need that sort of degree or can you kind of just come from any sort of walk of life so I just wanted to know what you thought about your experience like going through the sort of education side of journalism was it worth it for you um I think because of the school I went to I felt it was worth it for me Mm. I think if I probably studied that went to that sort of like just typical like a typical academic institution where it was going to be like the very straight jacketed journalism. I don't know that I would have been open in the kind of way that I am because I think I would be very fixated on the very structured things. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think. Um, But I think, and even for a very long, to be honest, like when I I remember when I was filling my UCAS form, there were not many schools that (laughs) Um, there were not many schools that taught journalism at the time because yeah, it was a technical um, program. So people went into training. So it was just like, I think, six or seven schools in the country that did journalism. Because I didn't even, I actually had run out of schools to, to put on my form <laughs> because there was no, no other. I was like, I, I had three choices yeah. I really wanted. And then I'm just like, okay, is there any other school that, start, that does this? Um, because there were, it was the very it was seen as a technical degree a t- technical program so you go into apprenticeships work in like a local newspaper and then from there you rise up the ranks before you go to you get all this other certification and stuff like that um i do feel like now when i see like a lot of the programs they're a bit more richer and more encompassing of so much more um so i guess it can be a good experience now but i don't think it's something that you really need to no honestly mm. in that kind and, of way yeah and i think you can yeah, I just I think the systems changed so much in terms yeah, of even has. the style of this, yeah the style of writing the acts like the ways in which people want to consume journalism is so different now. Um, I do think that there's certain training that is necessary. So you know things that you know like like law legal stuff. Um, 
Yeah, those kinds, there are certain kinds of trainings that I think that are important. But I feel like even after university, you're still constantly doing so many, so much more training. So you're doing trauma training on your own later. You're doing, you're trying to, how to report on certain kinds of things. So even when you do become a journalist after university, there's so many more, so much more studying that happens mm. to become better at the areas that you want to cover. So, yeah, I, I'm a bit in between about it. Like, I think if you want to study it, fine. But, um, I, I feel like you, you can't do it without that degree. Mm. So one of my favorite questions to ask people uh, like yourself, why mm. did you decide to move to Nigeria? Why didn't you stay in the UK and, and do journalism <laughs> there? Why did you decide to come home in very common? So, oh gosh. <laughs> so here I am. Um, the year is 2007. You know, I've worked very hard. You know, I I, gra- I graduated top of my class for the first hey, class, so I'm very excited. Mind, you know, bad gal. In my yes, mind, so. I'm like, ah, I'm getting a job instantly. Uh, in fact, even before I graduated, I already had like a little feature on BBC World Service that I had made. So it was like, you know, I had done work experience at production companies. So I mean, like, I just thought I was so prepared. I was like, okay, I have the degree, check. Work experience, check. I even have BBC on my CV. Like I've done a little feature on, I think it was one of those programs in the World Service. I can't remember what the name was at the time. You know, I've done one of those programs. I've, I, you know, I've, I, have, I have that credit check. So I'm there thinking, okay, this is going to be easy. I graduate from school. I cannot find a job for like four, four months or so. So at some point, um, I'm even, I'm both broke and like just living with different friends on couches for like three or four months. Eventually, mm. I, I think I get a job in like customer service at, uh, what do they call it, at a furniture company. So I'm doing that. Then I start, te- after that, I start temping again, then just temping like admin stuff. Then I think eventually mm. by 2008, I finally settled on a job at um, British Transport Police in recruitment. But then I'm still doing, I'm still doing features on the side, right? So I was I was getting a few like um, radio feature jobs um, in between. So those were like it was like it was like my me- my media thing was just like this thing that happened in between my my normal life. And then I think at some point um, I was just like, yeah, I think this was by two thousand and eight. Um, just moving into I think September or so. I sat down one day and I just asked myself that okay, you've been applying for every single like med- um, you know journalism job. Me, um, radio producer, assistant, you know, like the bottom yeah, pile. I applied girl, for everything. Yes, I feel you. I even applied in like, I even applied in like um, advertising. I was like, okay, anything around media. Let me just, right. you know, let me just find my way. You know, and just it wasn't happening. Um, and then I think I remember I even yeah I even did stuff like feature stuff for like um one extra at the time. And then I think I just asked for myself one day. I was like, do you know what? Like you can't seem to even get to do. <laughs> to get any of these these gigs like permanently or whatever, and then what if you now get it? Then all oh, they'll be they'll be sending you out to do like cover like bird watch stories. That's what I told myself. I said to myself, <laughs> like, can you imagine like? And then I think I was also very, I was also very like passionate about like social issues and just being black and being an yeah. immigrant. So all of those like my experience like literally was cluttered me so I wanted these are the stories I wanted to do I I think I've always had this very strong 
sense of the kind of things I want to write about or make work about. Mm. And, and I'm not interested in anything in you stressing me out to do things that I don't really care about. <laughs> I think I that was, you. that's one, that was I one of my, feel you. yes, you know? So, and so at this point I felt like, like the space didn't need me. So I was like, I don't have any use in this place. And then at this time, and I, I think a year before I'd come to Nigeria mm. on holiday um, and did an internship at a radio station and I made a lot of like friends. So it was my first, because I think that was like my first time in Nigeria after leaving at like 16. So it was my first time as an adult in Nigeria too. So I made all these like friends who were in the arts and media and it was just like a starting to like flourish, you know, mm. there were new things popping up and I kept in touch with them on Facebook. So everybody kept going, man, babe, you need to come back to Nigeria. You need to, you know, the Facebook time of come back to Nigeria. Oh, so like, I know. To Nigeria. That's how I got your tricked skills, too. Your skills are going to be mad. Yes, girl. Your skills <laughs> are going to be mad. Yeah. You know, ah, like, uh-uh, you have, you know, you do, and you know, you're a London girl, man. <laughs> they will snap you up. <laughs> like, eh? They will snap you up like, ah, this. and then I'm like, again, I'm a scaredy cat. So even before I was like, somebody gave me like an email to all advertising agencies in Nigeria. So I emailed all of them. Cause I was like, do you know what? Even if I can just find a job to keep me together while I figure things out, when mm. I get to Lagos, you know, I had an interview with this ad agency, the mad, the, the boss came to London. He took me out for lunch. You know, those days you are very broke working a temp job. So I went to one high end restaurant. I ordered all the seafood on the plate. <laughs> so yeah um all of this crazy stuff was happening but yeah i remember like at that point i was just like i, can't, I was like i can't do this anymore like how do i go to school suffer through pay student between student loans and working at waitrose just to pay my tuition and to live to survive only to and you know i they prom they, the world tells you that when you do well at school you know all the opportunities are laid yep. in front of you yep, i'm like yep, yep. finish and then i can't <laughs> then i can't even What's the point? And like I'm here working at BTP in in human resources, and the woman is there. My boss is stressing me out, and I was like, you know what? I can't like I can't do this anymore. And then I have all these my Nigerian friends saying, "Man, babe, you need to come, man. I know your voice is mad. You also have a British bonnet. They will snap you up." So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm done. And so my, my contract with BTP, I was still scared again. I thought I was still going to be like, okay, let me just extend it a bit. But then my contract with BTP ended in December. And literally I just took all the money I had left. I think I had like less than a thousand pounds in like between savings or whatever I had. Bought a ticket for about 400 quid and just packed two suitcases and went to Lagos by January 2009. I actually even bought a return ticket for September. <laughs> But I never used it. Wow. So, and yeah, that's that's how I Lagos. I think ultimately, if I had to like whittle it down, I did. I felt like there was no use for me in that space, and I was not going to go and get anywhere um, because there was no use for me. I mean, in yeah. hindsight, so just, in yeah. hindsight, um, obviously, you've gone on to achieve like you know amazing things. As I mean, yeah. you know, we spoke briefly about you know all that really triggering stuff on the timeline about black women in, in UK yeah. journalism. Mm -hmm. um, in mm -hmm. hindsight, do you feel like you made the right decision? Like given that so many people have come oh. out and spoken about, I mean, it was very triggering for me, like seeing yeah. some of the experiences people were talking about, um, yeah. you know, and just what, what it's like being black. Like you said, like certain stories that you feel moved to tell, but you're not given the space to. And 
you know, it's, it's, exactly. really, it's really powerful what you said about feeling like you weren't of use, even though like yeah. you graduated at the top of your class, like you obviously know what you're doing when it comes to journalism, but you still felt yeah. like in that space, there was, there was nothing you could do. So in hindsight, do you feel like you made the right decision moving to... Oh, I think it was the best decision I made. Mm. I think it was the best decision on so many levels. Um, so many levels because um, beyond the fact that if I was still there, and as I said, this the space doesn't make you like you. I just felt like I was I was useless there. They didn't need me there. So what was the point? That was like even the first thing. Even if I even got into the system, I would probably be relegated to some desk doing some God knows what. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like you know, or again, you know how we we will probably end up becoming like race reporters. I think there's something about being in a space that where you are not thinking, you are just thinking of your of doing a story because it's important, not because you're black. Mm. There is there is a, a certain kind of emotional freedom that that does, you know. Because I even remember even when I, I used to freelance for some production companies, um, sending in like documentary radio documentary ideas, and after it was as though like a lot of the stuff I was sending. If I send stuff that was general mainstream, they'll be like, mm, okay. But then if I had something that was very ethnically specific, <laughs> um, they'll be like, oh, this is interesting. You, and then and even when I and even when I thought it was important, it was like they would tell me why it wasn't important or why it wasn't necessary. And I'm like, but this is important. So yeah, I don't know. I think no, definitely I think that that's like those are some of the levels in which I made the best decision. Also, I do think that England as a space in general, it's changed now, but it wasn't like this before. It was very, very sort of tunnel vision, one track minded. You could ne probably never do anything else other than what you were doing. Yeah, I found that it's too, to like, be honest. It's yeah. Like now. yeah. No, I mean, now I see, I go to um, London and, on, for summer and I see like all these like young creative people. And then somebody's like, oh, I'm a DJ on the side. I, I do DJing, but I also like, you know, teach. And then I do poetry and then I write stuff. I'm just like, eh, you could not have this opportunity at that time. <laughs> so there was no, like, once you were working here, you were working there. Uh, before you knew it, you had built a career in that. So I probably would have just built a career in human resources at some point and just carried on from there. That's, yeah, there was no... There was no avenue to to do more than one thing or to even explore openly. You know, now I feel like, yeah, we've, we've kind of like opened up a bit of room to be more than more than that. But I think before it was never like that at all. So and Nigeria, Nigeria's just kind of hustle mentality opened me up in such a different way. Yeah, because that's definitely exploring true. Yeah, because exploring yourself was a is a necessity here. It's not even about you know artistic freedom. It is about it's survival. Yes, sir. here <laughs> definitely. <is. laughs> you know exactly. So it's not it's not artistic freedom because you are like ah, while I'm working at the radio station, my salary is not great, but you know the the fact that the radio gives people lets people know you, so they call you to MC an event. If you're not even if you're not a good MC, you will learn how to be a good MC. Mm -hmm. Very you know, true. from there you're like, they're like, oh, okay, the auditions for TV or for a TV show or whatever for a presenter. Like, even if you don't know how to do it, you're gonna learn. <laughs> so you go there, you transfer those skills, and you learn how to do your TV thing. You know, um, yeah. So I think that Nigeria actually forces you to open yourself up purely on survival, and then yeah, from there you can evolve, and then it can be something that becomes part of your your repertoire. 
But initially, it doesn't necessarily start like, oh, it's just a hobby. I just like writing poems. You write poems at some point. When they are, if they are paying you for it, you take it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when you were talking about, oh, you know, having friends and stuff, talking to you about moving to yeah. Niger, like w- when I moved to Niger, I didn't really have friends. It was like, because yeah. I didn't grow up here. It was more my dad yeah. being like, you know, you should come. Like, you know, all the li- like the lines that you were saying, like when you were saying it, I was just yeah. like, it was flashing back into my head. But what was the reality <laughs> for you when you got here? Because you know people like to make all these promises. You got good degrees, you get sense. You know, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Oh, and, then, and then you get here and you're like, oh, okay. So what was you your... Know, you know, like, <laughs> first of all, right? Like, even when you do get here, there is small special treatment at first. They just they are just waiting for you to settle in. Then they will just, Nigeria will just unleash itself on your destiny. Yes, I couldn't agree <laughs> no. more. So, uh, so I think I, re- I yeah I still remember when I first got here. It was like ah jand babe, jand dead babe, jand dead babe. You know? <laughs> and then like it wouldn't take you long. It's just before you know it, like everything. First of all, you realize like. Even when you think you're being paid decently, that money cannot do anything. Whatever you're paid is never en- it's not enough for anything. Yep. Because like money leaves your hand like water here. It's crazy. <sighs> so the reality for me was interesting because um, first of all, even w- before I came, the or when I came actually um, and interviewed, the boss at the time said, you know, he was like, oh, he really likes the, you know my whole experience that I have, like the whole BBC experience and kind of like very talk rate like talk radio rate you know radio features that kind of thing and that's what he wanted to incorporate because most of nigerian radio was just um very much music formatted type stuff um and then you know by the time i start um it's like no that's not what we're doing we're like doing normal music radio and chilling and cracking jokes and stuff so you know me coming from my in quotes serious journalist background <laughs> you know was turning my nose up at this like, hey, radio personality, hey, hey, what's up, Lagos type thing. But I was doing it because I was like, okay, this is the job for now. So this is what I'm going to do. And then it was like, it wasn't changing because at some point I'm like, oh, we don't have budget for you to go and be recording, do anywhere to record anything. You know, you the newsroom, they, are, they get all the news via phone. <laughs> Nobody goes anywhere on assignment, you know, all this sort of stuff. So, you know, there was that, which I had to kind of adjust to. Um... There was the general stuff of just, you know, part of, even part of your job, the, the general harassment um, of Nigeria in general. But I, I don't know that I was completely, like, shocked by that because I grew up in Nigeria until I was 16. So I, I, I know, I know, I know, I, know, I have a base. Um, but I mean, you, you've not dealt with a lot, a lot of those things in a long time. Then, of course, a lot of just the phoniness of, Yes, people promising you this or wanting to do this with you. There's a, there was, I think that period was where there were also a lot of returnees too. So everyone was trying out different things. Everybody had all these um, esoteric ideas of things they wanted to do in Nigeria because they felt like Nigeria was really lacking. So they were the ones that were going to come and save us, <laughs> you know? So there were a lot of all the <laughs> everybody with their fancy project ideas going on that nothing was happening. And you, you had to, you had one of the skills you had to do in Lagos, I think at the time was really learn how to know what was bullshit from what was legit. <clears throat> that was a very important skill to have. Yeah. 
Um, you know, a lot of um, Nigerians owe you money for work that you will do and you will not get paid. Learning that, you know, in fact, when I would be owed money, I had to go and buy cake to give the, the people. I'll buy stuff, I'll buy, like every time I would travel, I would have to, <laughs> to buy chocolates just so I get my money. <laughs> because learning about um, kickbacks, oh these are all things I didn't know. So, you know, when, you know, when you get, when maybe like an advertising agency, like, you know, asks you to come and host an event or something for a client, when they pay, you have to, you know, you have to give this backyard 10% or 15%, whatever it is. But you never know beforehand. It's after somebody sends you a message, oh, so this is my account number. <laughs> you know, and you're like, what? So there was just a lot of things that you just had to kind of learn about Nigeria. Um, a lot of, prom- you, you think you have so many ideas. And when they talk to you, they sweeten you up. They're like, yeah, 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 sounds great. Come to my office. And then you go to somebody's office and they want to sleep with you. It's just, it was just all sorts. Like there were moments, I was just exhausted. I remember the first year I was exhausted half the time. So I think it was literally like writing that kind of took my mind away from all that stuff. So you, I was just, you were just exhausted all the time. You felt like, you know, your ideas were not going anywhere. If you wanted to do something, or just you, know, you were just wasting your time half the time. So it was a rude awakening, but then eventually I think you just have to make peace with it. It's a, it's a peculiar environment. Um, and what's also interesting I found was that the fact that it had no structure meant that you there were loads, loads of loopholes for things that could work in your favor as well. So it was just a function of finding how it would work for you. Mm. Um, and and how, yeah, that was kind of how I really kind of like settled into it. And I, I had to change my mentality and approach specifically Lagos as an adventure. Mm. That's a good point, actually. Yeah. That was the way I was able I'm... to move on with stuff and do things comfortably. Because I think a lot of people, like, when they move back, they move back with mm-hmm. a lot of their sort of sensibilities from, like, the UK yeah. or the US. Mm-hmm. And then they yes. struggle because they're thinking about things like, yeah. well, you know, in the UK or in the US. And even though some of those critiques are valid, like, this is yeah. my jar, so, like, yeah. it's just... <laughs> it's a different ball game here, so you need to, it. like... You know, yeah. put your seatbelt on and just, you just like, it's the only way you can survive Nigeria is to get on with it. You just get on with it. That's it. That's mm. all you can do. You get on with it. You figure out what works in your favor, what, what's going to work for you. Because if you don't have that kind of self, I, I, yeah, it's, it feels like a selfish mentality, but it's self-preservation really. If you don't have that kind of mentality of, because everybody's trying to cheat you. Everybody's trying to scam you. So you just, you have, <laughs> like, you have to have eyes in your, in front of you, behind you, on top of you, <laughs> you know, beneath yeah. you. Like, your eyes have to be everywhere. Like, every, it's, it feels like it, the whole system is conspiring against you. Um, and so you, you, you almost like expect the unexpected, get on with it. You know, if something not so great happens, um, it's like, okay, another day we are alive. That's the most important thing, you know? I remember, like, twice in... It was twice in two weeks, I was, like... I had a whole arm robbery experience. Oh, my when God. I was going to work... Yes, I was going to work in a cab, rickety cab. And it was, like... Because I was working the morning shift, so I used to have to leave around... 
I think, yeah, around like 4 a.m. and stuff. I would, normally I would take a bike, take a bus, but that particular day I took, I took a taxi. And then I was on the, the one of the, um, the bridge that descends into Onikon. The next thing, this guy looking like he was selling um, handkerchiefs comes to my window and then just pulls out a gun from his, like, his trousers. And so I'm just looking and there's deep traffic. So I'm looking there, I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So I tell the driver, I said, move, move. He said, madam, calm down, madam, calm down. So I'm there. I'm just looking. I now act like I am trying to take. I don't. Even, I, I wasn't even thinking. I was like acting like I wanted to take my handbag and give to the guy. Then I just bent down, and then I think before he he realized I was wasting time, he moved to another car. And then I said, "Oh God, oh. aren't you going to move?" He said, "Madam, when you start shaking like this, that's when something will happen. Just relax." <laughs> so that was. Like, <laughs> oh, I was like, "How do you guys feel like this is normal? This is not normal, you know." That was the, the next week. I think it was a Saturday. I didn't feel like cooking. Myself and my brother were living together in this small apartment. So I was like, I didn't feel like cooking. So I went to, uh, there's a little like bar in, near my estate. Went there to eat. There I was just eating turkey and rice. The next thing I just heard, everybody lie down, lie down, lie down. <laughs> I just, I dropped the oh food. My we all God. down. You know, they go to the till, they, they took the phones that were on the till, they now looked at me, they now said, give me your earring, give me your earring. I took off my earrings, it was like panda, plastic earrings, the guy gave me a dirty slap, boy. <laughs> I just kept laying down there. It was literally, ha- it literally happened in like <gasps> five, ten minutes, and they left. Do you know, um, I was in so much shock. After they left, I took my food and I continued eating. That was how much shock I was in. The other people were like, oh my God, I can't believe what's happened. I can't believe what happened. Then I said, my dear, are you okay? Are you okay? I said, oh God, I'm okay. Oh. I just finished eating the food when I finished. I said, how much is my money? Take. And I just walked home. I just got home. I said, yeah, hey Kong, I just, um, I just told my brother, I was like, I just got attacked by robbers like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> like very casually. This is how much shock, this is how numb I was. So yeah. Damn. <laughs> that- yeah, I mean, given all that, because I had like, you know, I feel like you probably did too. Like a lot of people who kind of moved here and then after a yeah. while were just like, you know what? I didn't come to life for this kind of experience. I'm going back <laughs> to like the UK, the US. Like it's not, you know, it's not by force to be here. Did you ever have a time where you were like, you know what? Yeah, let me, let me go yeah. back. Like, well, you know what was funny for me? Again, I think. Because I because I'm just like, I at the time maybe not now, but I think at the time I was just you know that thing where like they say oh, my, my friends always say to me that wanna over passion worries you. I was just so passionate about the things I was doing, but that wasn't really the issue. What happened mm-hmm. for me is that, and that's why I never left. The that one year I came, the first year when I got to Nigeria, even if like my salary wasn't great. But there were just things I found myself doing that I never had the opportunity to do before. And it was like a whole new world had opened up. And I was like, okay, even if I wasn't even being paid well for these other little tiny things. But it was like the fact that there was room. I just, I think I just felt like that, that feeling of I needed, I think, trumped mm. everything. And so it was like, you know, I would I, I go to my job in the day. When I finished, I was writing, like, on, I was blogging. Then I also wrote for Next Newspapers as well. So I'm there. I'm like, I was living in England. I couldn't even do even one. Not one. Not to even be able to do radio full-time or writing full-time. I could not, do, could not get one. I'm in another, this country. 
and I'm writing, practically writing full time. Um, you know, I'm on the radio every single day of the week. Um, on weekends, I'm emceeing somebody's wedding or some corporate event. And as I said, I was not wealthy. So it was not like I was making a ton of money, but it was mm. just like, so I'm allowed to express myself and do all these things and it's cool and it's okay. And you could, and there was a, there were, I could feel like there was some kind of growth. I could see where it, it could move to. And I think that was the thing that just held me spellbound in this place. I was like, oh, okay. And so before I knew it, like three years in, I've, I've adjusted, I've adjusted to the madness. You know, I'm equally, I can be as mad as they want me to be if you want to play that game. <laughs> you know, so he was, you know, I just know, save, your, save up your money, go to London once a year, <laughs> and then go there, anything, or you buy all your supplies or whatever, yep. visit your family, then come back and get on with it again. So I think that was kind of like what happened. It just, it was just the the fact that there was space to be able to just do stuff. and exp- mm. Even if there was like frustrating bits, even within that itself, some of it was, not, I felt like I, I felt some things were not appreciated, you know, but I just, I think I just felt like it was like, after you've been starved of opportunity for so long, and then you're like, okay, oh, wow. In fact, it even got to the point where then I started getting like international gigs from here. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I would be part of like, maybe like a community or something or some initiative thing. And they're like, oh, write an essay. And you know, you, you know, if you, if, we are choosing 20 people who go to Switzerland. I'm like, oh, I wrote an essay. Wow. And I'm on my way to Switzerland. I'm like, where would I do this in London? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's yeah. quite interesting, like, that you would say that. Because yeah. obviously you, you mm-hmm. now kind of, in, you know, in, in the midst of all the other stuff you do, you still write articles for, like, yeah. you know, international uh, media mm-hmm. organizations and so on and so forth. And what, what's that like? Um, doing that, given that, you know, some of these organizations, you know, when yeah. you were actually working in that country, wouldn't have given you that opportunity. Mm-hmm. But now here you are still oh. working for them in the end. I mean, even that, yes, it's, you know, you, it's great to have the platforms, but even that comes with all its, all its own um, nonsense, you know. Um, for instance, even with that, so you're you're basically like an African girl reporting from the continent and all of that sort of stuff. But then they also want only certain kinds of stories. So I know that every time if I send pitches, um, if I send a say a development story, I would get in in a matter of twenty four hours, somebody would respond to me. When can you send in the first draft? Instantly. If I send you a story, if I send a story oh, wow. on like I want to interview an artist or I want to do this other kind of story. Will be here. I'll I will resend that story ten times before they respond to me. <laughs> you know. So at some point, even even with that, I remember there was a point I googled, like I just googled my name, and then went into like the my Guardian Guardian page that had like all my stories, and it was like domestic violence, um, violence violence of it of, uh, of LGBT people, um, mm. blo- um <laughs> you know, I was like, wow. Like is this is this all I, I all I am, you right, know? Uh, yeah. So you then realize that okay, you you you're becoming a bit of a tool, girl, for this kinds of for a certain kind of storytelling, you know. Um. So it that even comes with its own thing. They only want to hear certain kinds of stories from here. So yes, having the platforms are great. Um. So I've had to deliberately say um, decide not to do certain stories anymore. Um. Which has been harder because. You know, you make less money because you're not, 
you're not pumping you're not pumping those Boko Haram stories this is so interesting to hear <laughs> honestly no yeah. I, and I think this is a really interesting perspective because it's not one you hear often like um mm. But yeah, that must be difficult, deciding not to do that. Oh, but yeah. why was it a conscious choice well, for you? What why? made you decide, like, I'm not doing this? I just, I think, I think, I think maybe also being an art. So I think, okay, over the past, say, five years, I'd gone, I'd attended a lot of um, reporting fellowships and, and those sorts of things, right? So a lot of, like, journalism-related fellowships, journalism conferences. Mm. And I'd been in those spaces and seen how it, you, you you just felt it was just very commoditized, like pain was felt commoditized. I remember going for um, uh, the journalism conference in South Africa. And, you know, one of the we were at one of the sessions anyway. And so this guy is like the head of a Swiss television or whatever. So I'm like, oh, OK, if you're are you interested in like, you know, documentaries from Africa or the region? And it's like. Well, you know, we only focus on if, if you have something on Boko Haram, that's good. If you have something on Boko Haram for me. I was just like, huh? <laughs> you know? Um, and it was and it was also very interesting just seeing how people just had no they, they had no interest in the humanity of people. So if I, I always felt mm. that even when I did cover development stories, I always was interested in the humanity of people, you know, and what they were about. Um so yeah. these things that happened to them were the circumstances they were in, but they're people and they're human beings, you know? And I, it felt very, very vacuous. Yeah, exactly. Like, and they're yeah, whole human beings. You know, and, yeah. And very extractive as well. And I just, mm. a point came, I think I stopped feeling any connection to doing that kind of story. And there was this thing that, that I didn't feel comfortable, didn't sit well with me, where I almost felt like I looked at a person and I saw a story to, I saw a story to sell. And I was like, yeah, this, this cannot be, I can't be this kind of human being, you know? And I think at that point I was like, yeah, this is not, this is not how I want, I want to do things, you know? Um, because we're here on constantly talking about how we need to um, express, you know, the humanity of Africans or the gamut of our, of the spectrum of our humanity and our storytelling and all of this. And then there's no difference from, dif- there's no difference from you and all the white reporters who just come and fly straight to Meduguri or fly straight to, to, you know, whatever states or by Elsa states to just do their militancy story or do their Boko Haram story and and check out, stay in the nice hotel and check out the next day. Like, what is the difference? What is the point of you living on the continent and having access to, like, and being a part of a community only to, to just do the single story again? And not even just single story, but a one-dimensional single story. I, I remember writing us doing a piece um, and um, pitch. I was, I pitched the story. It was eventually axed, but then I sold it to another publication and it was a story on, um, what was it on? Yeah, it was on just um, Northern, Northern beauty secrets and, you know, um, halawa um, sugar waxing and all of those sort of things. Um, and so the initially, the initial um, publication that commissioned it, she kept saying to me, the commissioner kept saying to me that, oh, please make sure you put in something about um, genital mutilation. And I said, they don't really practice genital mutilation in the north of the country. That, so I don't really see the importance. She was like, oh, she has a colleague who lived in Sierra, Le- Sierra Leone. And she sa- I said, well, this is not Sierra Leone. Mm. So it's not really. I kept saying, this is a beauty story. I really don't understand what is, really, what, how FGM is relevant to this story now. Even if, it's practiced in that area, even if, because it isn't, but even if it is, even if there was, even if that, well, how is it relevant to the story? 
I mean, the only thing that the lady was, uh, the, the character in the story was a child bride. So that, that I was going to highlight because I thought that made her story very interesting, but she's also using these traditional practices to empower herself. Right. Um, so I just, I guess uh, what, what is this need to insert something that, that has no business <laughs> in it? Just like, is this what's going to make you feel good? Like I didn't get it. So, and then in the end, she even ha- um, asked the story because the person, the character didn't want to be photographed mm. and just cultural reasons. So, you know, the author is very conservative. They don't want to be in the media or anything. And she's like, oh, if we're not photographing her, then we, because I envision the story with, with images of her. Oh, wow. And I, I came up with other ideas of like, because there were other people I interviewed and I was like, we can, we can take photos of this because it's, it's a beauty story. We can show you actually doing the, you know, she was like, no, they want pictures of the woman mixing the sugar together on the fire, everything, everything. So eventually they, 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 you know, they killed the story. And then I, I saw this to someone else, which was fine. But I just thought, I was like, this is, well, the politics of this is too interesting to me. And then I think, I think also a part of me is also like, look, I have chosen to be a freelancer. And so if I'm, the least I can do for myself is do what I want, you know? So, yeah. So I think that's, I just made a deliberate, it doesn't mean that if there are important stories that I'm, whether they're negative or, or terrible, I'm not going to tell them. I am going to tell them. I don't know that that is my, my first priority. I think my priority is to tell, tell stories that are nuanced, that, that show our complexity and still can still show our joy amidst our pain or our resilience or whatever. Do you know what I mean? But it can't surely, like, all my stories cannot just be rape, rape, rape. Domestic violence, domestic violence, domestic violence. So I think it also comes from a, priv- a place of privilege. But what I mean privilege, my privilege is in a sense of the fact that I do more than one thing. So, um, and I think I've also deliberately tried to expand my skills as much as possible so that I can create more opportunities for myself in a way that that allows me to be able to make choices to do the things I want. So that's where it comes as privilege because I think that many people for many reasons don't have the time to be able to develop certain parts of themselves, um, you know, or just may not be able to be equipped to do all of that. It's too much to be honest, Mm. (laughs) but you know, some people are not wired that way. The way some people are wired to work in an office is the way some people are not wired to, you know, be all over the place. Um, Mm. yeah, so I take it that that's my own, you know, it's my own gift and curse, but I think the positive side of it for me is that it's allowed me to say, oh, okay, I only, I only, I can only do these kinds of stories and that's fine. Um, because I will go and, you know, find money from writing a monologue or something for somebody's theater show or, you know, doing Mm. my poetry and performing or, if I had to, or hosting or uh, moderating events or something along those lines. Some people don't have those skills. They might not just be people pe- present. They, they might not have access to it anyway. Um, and so I think that allows me to be able to say, I only want to do a certain kind of sto- um, storytelling. But it doesn't really, it doesn't mean that I'm saying I don't um, want to, like, I think every story is important. I just, I think I just got to a point where I felt like, you know what, like, they, I think that those stories are covered enough. The 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 Oyibo girls are doing a fantastic job. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know that. I I feel like I want to add to it again. So mm, unless, un, ex, yeah, and except 
I can find something new and nuanced to be able to, to, to show something more interesting and dynamic in that space or in that story. I don't want right. to do an 800 words on what 10 other people have already done. Right. I feel you. you. So I think that's, that's kind of where I mentally am right now. And then I think even in where I'm sort of like going towards, which is a lot more like culture stories and things like that and cultural writing. I also feel like there are not many, I think for me, again, I'm always, I feel like I'm, I always find myself looking for a space where whatever I, I have to offer can be necessary and important. I think that's always something that's big for me. And I, I keep saying it's why I left radio as well when I, when I left my job, because I felt like I wasn't useful in that space anymore. I was done doing what I needed to do. Um, and so I, you know, I think about it, me being an artist myself, spending time with a lot of artists and then seeing that, you know, as black people, and so this is not even an African problem, it's a black problem, as black people creating and black people in the arts, our, our, um, our craft is never spoken about when people are being interviewed or people mm. are being reviewed. So we're only good for, again, the negative story. So it's like, oh, she was a refugee. So before you know it, somebody's created a really incredible piece of installation or whatever. All the, the out of 1,200 words or, or 2,000 words, all we're going to see is about her refugee background. Right. <laughs> you, I, feel, I, get, I get what you're you saying. Yeah. So it's like where, as one of my friends says, he says, you know, someone I interviewed and he said, um, you know, we're good for content. Um, no one's talking about our craft or our technique or any of those things. You write a story, you write an inter interesting and intricate love story. You know, they are looking at the war in, uh, what do they call it? They are looking at the war in Zimbabwe or something along those lines. Or the right. war in <laughs> that's, that's all that concerns the, the person writing about you. So again, for me, I just felt like even in that space, I don't see, we're not very many black people or African people writing about our own um, art and our own cultures. Um, and when people do write about it, they, they basically pathologize us. So I was like, I want, uh, you know, at this point, you know, let me get in that, into that arena and try to do a good, decent job of it at least. Um, and so I think that's kind of, so I, I think mm. I, I guess I'm looking for a challenge as well. Um, and where my skills are necessary and needed, you know? So I think my skills are not needed in telling any more, um, <laughs> I, I don't know how many more domestic stories I can tell, how many more rape stories I can write about. I mean, I, I will still do, I'm not going to say I'm not going to do those. I'm still going to do those. Um, when, as when, and when necessary, if there's something that is new or something I have access to that other people don't have access to, um, but yeah, so I think that's just kind of my take on it now. You have a massive, massive body of work. Three spoken word albums. Congratulations on Transcendence. You've um, you got Culture Diaries, loads and loads of articles. So it would be probably really difficult for you to pick. Mm. But if you had to say like one piece of work that you're mm. most proud of, mm. what would that be and why? Mm. One, I, I, I mean, I would say it's the, there's this article, the article I wrote for Al Jazeera on the Mirabal Center. Um, I think this was. Okay. Um, yes. I remember that one. Yes. Um, I think it's sort of significant on many levels for me because I think it was sort of my first, I think, yes, I think it was my first sort of international publication journalism piece. I think I'm, I'm not sure. I don't remember, but I think it, that was, it was, that was one. Um, two, I think I was just, I also felt very lucky because 
when I pitched the story, they said, oh, we want you to, we want you to make it like not a typical reportage piece, mm. which she want the lady, the, ed, the commissioning editor wanted something that felt sort of like literary and journalism simultaneously. And I think that was like the thing that actually brought life to that story, that it allowed me go into a space and not go in with this sort of very static, you know, sometimes reportage can be very, very like static. It's very, Mm. she said this, he said this, write your links in between. But it allowed me really kind of describe things and bring like air and just, yeah, there was a kind of emotion that it allowed me to bring to it, that it, you know, emotional sort of sensibility that allowed me to bring to it that I think gave the, the story the life that it needed. Um, so that's sort of on a creative level. But the most important thing was, I, it was the first time. So after the article was written and then it trended and then we did fundraiser happened because the center was going to close down as well. And then it brought the space into this sort of national conscience. Um, and we raised about $10,000 in two days. Oh, wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So literally it was like, my phone was just like off the hook, you know, in the process. And then even I think the state government felt a bit ashamed. They now went, you know, and they were like, okay, we're going, we're going to make sure that the center never closes down and all this sort of stuff. There were like big people donating money as well. So we kind of brought the space into like national um, consciousness and people now really knew about the center and what it did for, you know, rape victims in the, in the city as well. Um, so I felt really proud of that. And I think it was the first time I felt like, you know, the work you do can actually cause some kind of real change. Mm. They're fun. And they that's the been, best part with journalism. Yeah. So I think that was really what encouraged me. I was like, oh, wow. Like just from my laptop, <laughs> I can write mm. something and something amazing like this can happen. Um, mm. You know, so it, it really made you feel like, okay, there is a, you, again, you know, back to this thing about you finish journalism, going back to my, my sort of um, origin story of wanting to do something that ha- that is meaningful and feel feel useful to a space and leaving England because I didn't feel useful and then I come to Nigeria and then you know you write this story and that that about a place that you know helps to save people's lives that is about to close down and all of this sort of stuff and nobody cares about this place and then all of a sudden you know it doesn't close down and there's more more funding and more resources and everyone is throwing themselves and saying, I want to help you, I want to help you. In fact, they had to be, they had to start scanning people because, you know, some people have their own ulterior motives as well. But the point is like, you know, I think that was the first time I said, I realized that, you know, our work can do something, can shift something in a very, in a very physical and literal way. You know, beyond moving consciousness. And so, yeah, I think that story holds a very special place in my heart because of that you do so much work so many different types of work I know you mentioned like you know the hustling spirit of Nigerians but how do you manage to stay balanced how do you find that sense of not getting overwhelmed with with the different kind of stuff you do I know that as a freelancer as well sometimes you can take take on a lot because you know Mm -hmm. you want to stay afloat and you know there's there's no like you kind of have to regulate yourself so how do you how do you manage to do that so I think a lot of it for me is time management. That's one of the things. So I, I don't, I never really do two things at the same time. Um, I never handle two projects at the same time. So usually I'm like, um, I give everything seasons. So for instance, if I have like a documentary I'm thinking of working on, 
then I'm like, oh, okay, I, I set a time for it. So I'm going to do that in maybe October or something. So in that month, that's all I'm doing. Um, and then right. December, go back to pitching articles again and writing stories. So I even have like seasons where I'm just pitching like a crazy person and then waiting for stuff to get back. And then maybe for the next two months, I'm doing writing stories. Um, so I, everything kind of has its own like mood. Like, so even when I'm shooting culture diaries, I usually, I tend to shoot here in February because I find that. So Jan, just after January is like a dead month, nothing happens. Um, February is still a little bit dead. So it's the only time people are like have resurrected from the December and January madness. So I can do some recording in January and then that's it. So they're editing throughout like March or whatever. Um, yeah. So everything has its like time slot. And then when I'm done with that, I'm done with that. And I go back, go to another thing that I'm doing, but I'm never really working on a lot of things simultaneously. So even my album, I shut down throughout November and all I was doing was writing the album you know, did that into sort of December. Jen, then I, I decided I was going to record in February um, and then lockdown hit and I, I was done recording in February. So everything is like very, very, I, I kind of treat it like you work in a company and you handle different projects. So everything is very, very deliberately time managed. Um, but I think even also within that, something that's like really big for me is you have to be content with what it is you're able to achieve within whatever it is that you're doing. Because you always fight that thing where you feel like, oh, I could be giving this so much more. I could do this, more of this, more of that. Um, but I think you just have to be satisfied with what you're able to do with, with whatever it is. You know, you're a storyteller. You you navigate all these different worlds. Um, yeah. And sometimes in some of your art, like your spoken word, you kind of, you know, you talk about things that are quite personal to you. Yeah. Um, how do you kind of balance that in, like, given that sometimes you have to put on your journalist hat? where you're encouraged to be slightly further removed from the story. Um, Do you just see it as two separate things or do you try to like infuse, you know, bits, bits of creativity into your journalism or how do you sort of manage that balance? So I think with my poetry, I always say my poetry is for myself. Like it's the one thing I keep for me. Mm. Um, Journalism is for everybody else. Journalism is other people's story. I'm mostly telling other people's stories. Um, I do think like sort of, I guess the, the personal connect, emotional connection I have with poetry allows me to connect with people in a more intense way. I find, I don't know why, how it happens, but it just does. <laughs> so I saw you do a thread the other day yes. um, where you were talking about like poets and making sure people get like paid their correct coins. Yeah. What made you decide to do that? Cause I've, I've seen like so many people hailing you for doing that, mm-hmm. for your honesty and just for putting that out there. Why did you decide to, to do that? So I think um, generally, I, I mean, as we know, and I, again, this, I don't know that this is a Nigerian problem. This is just a general problem with the world and never like can talk about money and transparency as well. Mm. Um, and one of the things was myself and I, about two other friends, two or three other friends, I feel like we're kind of like the main people that really started working with, there was somebody else who worked with brands. I think he came before us in terms of like poetry, but I feel like in the recent times we're the ones that have really been like working with brands or, and, and performing at a lot of events and things like that. Um, and we've had to figure it all out by ourselves, you know? Uh, we've had to go through mistakes. We've had to be, we've been shafted, you know, in many different situations. We've gotten ourselves into trouble without realizing it. Um, 
And so now what's happened is that we realize now that there is like a whole new like crop of young people who are interested in performance poetry. And there are tons of them and a lot of them are really young, they're kids. And, you know, because a lot of these brands or agencies know that they can't really mess with us as much, they go to them because they feel like they're easy to manipulate. Because a lot of these young people are like, they never even thought that this could earn them a living anyway, right? So they're just thankful that somebody wants to pay them to perform poems, you know? They think it's what they're doing this. It's almost like battle rap. It's what they do in their spare time. And then it's like people want to pay them. So anything you pay them, they will take it, you know? And they'll ask them to do so so much exploitative work. Um, And I just thought, you know what? I think it was yesterday and I, I said, you know what? We did not suffer for other people to continue dealing with this. Like, at least let the suffering end with us. And I just like, we need to do something about it. So, um, and the truth is, I don't even know if some of them are going to really take heed because another thing that you realize, a lot of people are just there. This idea of visibility is much more important than everything else. So some people will just take Mm. stuff because they think that it's going to make them visible, but it backfires when (laughs) you see your work being used for all sorts you know, that, that you weren't paid for in the first place. Um, so I think that was very important to me. And I think I just want to encourage, open up conversations around money. I think that creative people never like to talk about money. We always want to sound like we're, oh, we're just so passionate. It's all so passion. And the idea of talking about money, some kind of evil capitalist thing. But I'm like, if you don't have resources, how are you going to keep doing the job? How are you going to be comfortable enough? You know, and even in journalism as well, people never like to talk about how much they were paid. Um, for certain things. If I didn't, it was because I used to like started having conversations about money with other journalists, um, journalists as well, that I knew that, look, there's always a 10% room, you know, for these people to go up when they say, oh, we can only pay $400 for the story. You're like, can you do 550? <laughs> and they say, okay, we can do 500. If I didn't know that, all I would have just been thinking is, you know, I remember the time where, where you're still young in the game and all you want is a byline. So just getting a commission is like, whoa. So even if they're paying you $200, you would, you would go, in fact, you would rather get in, into debt to go and do that story because you just wanted the byline. But these people know what they're doing, <laughs> you know? So I think it's just, for me, it's just like having to open up conversations around money. I had some people even say online that, oh, well, um, they've, you know, they've never... People don't talk about money. I said, but you've never asked, you know, same thing again in TV. I have a couple of friends and they send me messages like, oh, I'm, I got this offer for something. What do you think? And I'm like, nope, nope. This is what you do. This is what you do. This is what you do. Um, because I just think, because also it trickles down as well, right? Like when people are exploiting in that kind of way, industries are exploiting, they assume that, you know, everybody's cheap labor because they're hungry. And so even, even for me, when they now come to me, they con- constantly lowball me because they know that, ah, they can go and meet, uh, you know, Poet X and he will collect 20,000 Naira to do this thing. But if I tell you for your campaign, I want 3 million Naira, you will be, you know, they're like, what do you mean? Who do you think you are? So I think even for, from, even from a personal standpoint, it's, we all have to talk about money. Any advice for budding creatives, people that are seeing your work and are like, wow, I want to do what she does. What would your advice be? Gosh. Okay. Okay. So 
this is something that has been that I've been thinking about recently, I think, and I, I will say this. Um, please, if you whatever it is you're doing, just stay consistent. Even if you feel like people don't get it, you feel like um, you're not, especially in this sort of social media age where it's like everybody is, once people make a certain amount of noise, then they're known and, you know, like getting like popular is, is a bit, is a lot quicker, (laughs) you know? Um, And sometimes when people, it's become a barometer for how people measure their success. So how many numbers, what's the, what's the number saying, you know, um, you know, are you, are you getting recognition? All those sort of things. Um, Or as we like to say, are you being seen? Whether or not you are being validated, you are being awarded, hyped or not, keep, just keep at it. Because one of the things for me, it has been, especially because like all the things I'm interested in are all like niche things, <laughs> which is so strange. So it's almost like I used to have people make fun of me that it's like, you just want to die a poor person because you didn't even choose one like, mainstream <laughs> thing. You, know? you are doing journalism. You are doing poetry. Like who is in, who does any of this stuff? <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's, but I think what I realized is there's so much I've, I've, I've been doing and I'm only reaping the benefits like 10 years later. Mm. You know, wow. um, and even sometimes there's, you know, there's the thing of, you know, what you sow, you'll reap. But what a friend of mine said to me was that she was like, it's not where you sow, you will reap but what you sow, you will reap. So you, a lot of the things I've done, I've sometimes I've expected to reap from the thing itself, but it doesn't happen that way. So I end right. up reaping from something else because what you realize that you've been planting in a big field. So you're going to get the whole harvest. So not necessarily waiting for to plant oranges and get oranges. Oh, I like that. You know, so keep, doing what it is that you're doing, however long you feel like it, just carry on doing it. And there's something I also think about, there's something to longevity as well and the expertise that it gives you and, you know, building your name and, and yeah, and just building that thing. There's, there is a point that, you know, it will come into play and it's like you are untouchable and unquestionable, I think, in some way when it comes to the work that you're doing. Um, another thing I would say as well is, Try to make things manageable for yourself. So there are a lot of people that, you know, they maybe say they want to make documentaries or they want to, so even like a podcast or whatever, they always have this sort of high-end, um, high sort of high-end way of trying to do things, right? Um, uh. Which I think, and I think sometimes that can slow your process because in your head it's like, oh, so I want to make this thing and then I'm going to put all my resources into it and then, I don't reap the benefits and then you're exhausted right. you ton of money. So mm-hmm. from you make it manageable where even if you don't get the things that you want out of it, you can just continue doing it. Mm. So I, I'll give you an example. So I think so like for culture diaries, I remember, you know, doing this, you know, just re- it's, for me, it's like, it's a small recording. It's two, two cameras, you know, two people were having a conversation. And I know that there are people that have told me, Oh, you know, you need to up the, up the production value, you know, get this <laughs> or get that. You need to do this and do all of these things. And then all of those things will kind of require like resources. And then if you now don't, you know, after you're doing, doing that, and if you don't get any 
um, sponsorship or you don't get any funding for it, you then get upset and then you feel like I wasted all my life and my time and my energy and my money on making this massive brand production um, mm-hmm. that didn't, that didn't re- give me any, reap any returns. So for me, I'm like, you know, why not do it in like a small manageable way where you can continue doing it across uh, like for a very long time, you know? So one day you can be like, I've been working on doing this project for the past 10 years and that 10 year portfolio becomes, you know, capital and collateral to be able to get resources back and, or just even lead you to other places that you never expected in the first place. So that's something that um, I think is really important for people to know. Um, and the other reason as well for um, saying to people that, you know, you need to all, also keep at it is, be, is because I think because people come and go, right? And a lot of things can be very fickle. And again, I think that there's a power to that persistence and that and, and shows and I think it shows vision. Do you know what I mean? That is, yeah. you, now you didn't just go, it's not every year. Oh, so this year I'm doing fashion. The fashion did not work out. Next year, I'm going to start doing uh, making table mats. Then table mats are not moving. Then, okay, I'm now a life coach. Life coach is not selling again. <laughs> I tell you, yeah. So I really do think there is something to sort of a long, I think long-term vision is important to me. Um, I think that, you know, if you're going to be doing certain things, you, I mean, you're going to experiment in between, which is fine. Um, but yeah, I think having long-term vision is, is, is important. Um, knowing that, you know, you're not I, like when, what we do is not buying and selling. Like creativity is not, it's not like, Oh, I bought a dress and I'm selling it for higher, for a higher price. And I'm going to get this profit. Like it, it doesn't work like that. So you can create stuff and then it's until 10 years time or five years time. And they say, Oh, I want to show your films in blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah place. Or we want to distribute your film, your short films that you've been making. We want to use it as a, for, as a like study material. <laughs> and then you start to reap the benefits a lot later. So I think it's weird. Like art can be like an investment, like in creating can be an investment in itself. Um, so yeah, I think those are like, so yeah, make your, make your projects manageable. Um, keep, keep at it. And then, yes, the other thing I remember, because this, I feel like this is something I just learned recently. Don't get bugged down by who is watching or who isn't watching. Because I know that I let that bug me um, a few times and it just led to an unnecessary frustration, right? Because I would make uh. something and it, I would feel like there was no, especially, and you know, I mean, we, a lot of us grew up in this sort of internet age where, uh, um, a lot of our work was distributed online. These were these were our main yep. channels. So we are used to that feedback loop. We're like the first generation who are used to, you know, writing an article and people are commenting or they are sharing it. This is how you measure the success of article or of what you've written or what you've made or or things like that. Um, please do not bu- do not let that you know get into your head. Don't let it bug you down because. What happens is that that energy just gets in and then you're trying to do something else. And you're like, oh, what's the point? Is anybody, anybody interested in this? That's when you start thinking about audiences and markets, like things you shouldn't really be concerning yourself about rather than actually doing the work. So, yeah, I think that's the thing I would say. That's a very, very good point. I went through, unnes- I just felt so many internal frustrations that were so unnecessary. While now I'm in a position, in an emotional place where I'm like, look, I'm creating, 
if you feel like watching it, you go and watch it. If you feel like listening to it, you go and listen to it. It's my own archive and building of my work. You know, whenever you want to catch up, it's your it's fine. <laughs> we will be here still yep. doing what we're doing. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. And final question. I know we spoke about it at the beginning, yes. but what is next for you? What's on the horizon? Ooh. What can we look forward to? So I'm working on my first collection of poetry. I'm hoping Ooh. it should be done and it should be out before the end of the year, I'm hoping. <laughs> but, nice. but yeah, that's kind of like the immediate thing that I'm working on um, now. Um, there's always, I find that there's always these interesting collaborations that come in throughout, you know, beyond the things I plan that just show up. Um, or a certain interesting work that comes in, but I don't know of anything yet, but that's the the only thing I know that I have like planned. And then of course there's um, the Iowa um, residency next year. So that's about three months. So I will be in the US doing that from um, March to May next year. Exciting. So yeah, so that's Exciting. The bulk of it right now. And then just um, still like focusing on doing more art stories, trying to do as many, many more, um, interviews with artists as I can like profile pieces culture stories that kind of thing so yeah that was Wana Udabang you can find her on Twitter on at Miss Wana and check out her latest poetry album Transcendence on Apple Music thanks for tuning in to this episode of Behind All the Stories a podcast hosted and produced by me Yemi Siadegoke sound editing and mixing by Kalechi Anosia Artwork by Manuela Bonomi and music by New Age Music with a Z. See you next time.